to the 16th episode of Gen Z Investing Insights. Today we have Michael Mills from the Infinitary Fund. Uh, thank you for coming on, Michael. Yeah, thanks, Jake. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, Jake or Jacob? Which do you prefer? Jake. Jacob. Jacob? Okay. Yeah. Great, man. So uh, the majority of our audience are teenagers. So what was high school like for you? What was college like for you? Uh, well, so I'm 28 years old right now. So uh, high school from what I can remember was, I think I spent most like half my high school pretty much like not paying attention to things. <laughs> um, I I could say that uh, I think not to sell myself short, but I think I was more of like an underachiever uh, just because of that. Uh, but I realized, I think, you know, towards the end of my high school career, uh, kind of like the potential that I was capable of, um, you know, I started delving into a lot of, uh, academic literature, like economics, uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial type literature, uh, a lot of philosophy, uh, a bit of theology, uh, just trying to essentially better my mind as I go into college. And then with college, um, became the opposite problem. So I basically thought I knew everything <laughs> at that point. So um, again, more so towards the end of my college career, I kind of realized my shortcomings. I realized, you know, what I could improve on as an individual as I prepared to enter the workforce, as I prepare to, you know, think about like, what do I really want to uh, work on for uh, not necessarily the rest of my life, but, you know, what's the, what's the next big thing that I'm trying to essentially do? Uh, and in 20, so I graduated college in 2018, uh, high school, 2013, college 2018. But in 2016, uh, my current, my business partner, Nick and I, we got together to start working on our fund. And that was a culmination of, I guess, that thought process of, you know, the things that I was learning at the time, I realized, you know, I could essentially start creating and building something. Um, so in 2016, we decided to put our heads together and begin working on the fund. And then a year after I graduated in 2019, we launched that fund and it's been going in perpetuity uh, pretty much ever since. So. Yeah, do you remember any of the texts that you read in high school that were the literature that got you interested in economics and entrepreneurship? Yeah, initially, actually, believe it or not, it's a lot of fiction. Um, so very typical fiction that you would normally read in high school is uh, like Kurt Vonnegut or like George Orwell. I started reading more of that type of literature, uh, more more of the broader available pool of what those authors had to offer. Um, like player piano was interesting because it had a lot of commentary. Let's curve on it. It had a lot of commentary on uh, automation. Um, and then uh, George Orwell, Animal Farm was a big commentary on the Soviet Union. Uh, this particular, I think, if I'm if don't uh, don't quote me on this, but uh, I think it had to do a lot with Stalin's era. But then I also read a lot of uh, nonfiction. I was reading Keynesian uh, or Keynes, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, economics. Uh, I was essentially trying to go through the different economists, uh, the popular economists at the time, like Adam Smith, Keynes, um, some uh, more modern ones like Milton Friedman, uh, just trying to get an idea, just because it was something I was interested in at the time. Uh, comedians actually played a big role too. Comedians, their nature is to challenge the status quo. Uh, I was a bit of a Rebel back then gave my parents a huge headache, um, but that I think gave me a good mindset to question things um, that me, I otherwise would have taken for granted. So, yeah, and all all those things that you that you read about and got interested in high school did that 
was that a shared interest that you had with uh, Nick right in college? Is that where you met Nick? And did you guys have that that those shared interests in college? Yeah, so I met Nick. I would say in twenty. It's hard to remember at this point, but like probably like twenty fourteen ish. Um, so like you know, into my first year of college, uh, he was a graduate school at the time. He's about ten years older than I am, uh, and he's more of a math background. But we had a shared interest in the mathematical. Uh, relationship between uh, well, mathematical relationship between uh, economics and math, and then we also like talking about like geopolitics, um, international relations in general. Uh, we talked about a lot about the psychology of math, you know, how we think about numbers um, and the implications of that. Um, and then the investing portion of it was more so something he was already working on at the time. So what ended up happening was he was working on our model that we currently are using today, and he finished essentially all the testing and research by the time we had decided to start working together in 2016. So that was uh, essentially something he asked me to help him with. Uh, I was already beginning to become interested in investing at the time. And then um, we had other roommates that we actually engaged with as well to help us. Uh, well, you know, all of us together, we're going to start this company. Uh, but they all backed out after like a few months. So it, just, it was just left to be me and Nick. Col college kids don't have a long, uh, a uh, large amount of patience. <laughs> High school so, kids don't either. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so before you started the fund or before you launched it, what was your prior investing experience? Uh, really just our academic background, I guess you could say. I mean, really it more so was founded out of a the first principle is more was like mathematical expertise. Um, and that kind of evolved into the investment expertise. So we spent basically over four years on a research cycle. And um, that involved a lot of statistical testing, a lot of PhD level math that we were applying to what we were doing. Um, you know, we got outside opinions on what we we're doing, we back tested our model back to the early 80s. Um, and then when we launched the fund in 2019, we gained enough investment from friends and family to essentially start building a track record. So over the last, over the next few years, um, that was essentially the major proof of concept was, um, you know, could this do well with real money? Um, and, um, and it did. So um, yeah, I guess that was what the path was. Yeah, sorry, going back a little bit, um, bef before like you you got into college, you really got interested in economics, for the kids who want to pursue a career in finance investing, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that I really try to do, and it's kind of an overwhelming task, so I don't, I don't want to say go crazy with it necessarily, but um, like with the time that you have now, I think it's important to consume a lot of what the old thinking used, old thinking is and current thinking is in terms of like uh, finance and economics. You know, Adam Smith is relevant uh, insofar that it has been a foundation to what we know about economics today, but I still, still think it's worth reading uh, to, to trace that line of thinking. Um, because, you know, when we think of like the last couple hundred years in terms of development of the investment and economics community, you know, what we know now isn't necessarily a static data point that we can 
uh, or we should take in in of itself. I think, again, tracing that line of thinking back to how we think the way we do today is very helpful because it gives us a more uh, broad understanding of the subjects, but it also allows us to understand the subjects enough to begin to pinpoint what the weaknesses in thinking were. Um, so I think that's super important. And then trial and error, I think is important. Um, failure is going to happen for sure. Uh, but I think people, what I've noticed is people are more impressed with the fact that you tried and you also learn a lot more just from trying. So um, I think it's just super important just to get there and just start doing, you know, create a paper trading account and just start, you know, playing around with investments. You know, I think with uh, TD Ameritrade, you get like, I don't know if it's like this still, but when I, at least a couple of years ago, when I was looking at it, they give you like a fake million dollars to actually uh, go and trade with. Yeah. yeah, invest with. So I think those are good tools. No, tools are available um, and out there. Um, and then I guess the final piece of advice would be to that, um, you know, the tidbit in investing is that past performance doesn't guarantee future results. And likewise, there's a entrenchment, entrenchment of thinking um status quo about how one should go about investing how one should be using the tools that we have available to us uh but there are new tools just waiting to essentially be discovered uh, in terms of the mathematics and economic space so what we have isn't necessarily all that could be so don't be afraid to innovate and try different things uh, within those tools specifically do you think like what are your main tools that you suggest and, and resources that you suggest that people who are new to, to finance and investing uh, use? Uh, if I was just getting started out, I would say um, I could put together like a list of YouTube channels actually and send it over if that's helpful. I don't have them off the top of my head, but uh, there's some good channels that I recommend that talk a lot about the inter uh, relation between economics and finance and how it relates, you know, the markets. I think also uh, just typical like easy online resources like Investopedia are pretty, it's pretty nice. And honestly, like, I don't know if I'll go this far, but, uh, or I would, I would tell people to necessarily go this far, but it might be nice to just also like get like a series 65 textbook, uh, like the investment advisory exam. So you can learn a lot of terminology um, and whatnot. And then uh, this crash course and Khan Academy, those are, uh, channels online. You can watch videos for topics on economics and finance that are pretty digestible. Um, and then there's something about um, options trading in particular. There's a couple books on options trading. I can send the links to those as well. Um, so we can have, have those uh, like in the description so people can look at. Um, they can give you a broad overview of what, how to do options trading because I know people are interested in that. But I say those are the good places to start if you don't have any experience or background. Yeah, that's where I started. I mean, I started out just like going over the Khan Academy economics and finance courses. And then I went more into books. I read uh, The Intelligent Investor. And I also went into those uh, like the Series 64 exams. I would go to the library and I would look up like the series exam for dummies books. I would just skip yeah. through them and then I'd write down like anything I didn't understand. And I would put it into a Quizlet. And then I had a bunch of flashcards from like any Investopedia terms I didn't understand or any terms from the books I didn't understand. So then I had all that information, all that knowledge um, on one data set. So that's super helpful for me. Um, but are there any like misconceptions that people who are new to investing might have about investing? Uh, I think the biggest one, especially once you start using real money, is that 
just because you did well over a certain period, be it like a month, six months, or a year, doesn't necessarily mean that you're good at investing. Um, I think uh, what defines, at least in our viewpoint, an affinitary fund, what defines a good investor is the ability to derive repeatable results over a long-term period. So if you can make the same thing happen again over the periods that you're looking at, maybe your holding period is a month, and then you can use that as a as a uh, a benchmark. Uh, but either way, if you can sustain it like multiple years, I think that means that you're probably on something in terms of the way that you think about investing and uh, your ability to, to do so. Um, I know a lot of people who got really, who did really well in with crypto when it blew up in like 2015, 2016, and they, they blew it all the next year trying to do it again. Um, and the same thing happened in 2020. I know a bunch of people who made hundreds of thousands of dollars just like instantaneously and it just evaporated because they thought they could, uh, again, do it again. And um, it turns out that wasn't the case <laughs> and the market tanked. Uh, so I would say the big, just uh, be humble and be cautious and be always questioning, I would say. Um, and if you do have a good year, that's good, but continue to examine what you're doing. How long do you think people should wait and try and accumulate investment um, experience before they get into leverage positions with options and, and warrants? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's like a natural, um, like a level of progression. Like we don't do mm -hmm. options and we don't plan on doing options, if not for a while. Um, so what, what you're going to find in any career uh, is that people are specialized. So some people, so usually what ends up happening is you go further in your career is that you become really, really good at one particular thing. So, you know, there are people out there who are really good investors, like famous investors. And I think like, you know, look at Warren Buffett. I don't think he touches crypto, but they're really good crypto investors out there. Uh, he doesn't probably doesn't know much about it. Uh, likewise, he probably doesn't know much about options. Um, he doesn't care to. <laughs> Right. So if, op if is options is the thing you want to do, then you can just start right there, I think. But if, um, but I would still would say learning the basics is important. Um, you know, again, learning the general terminology, you know, at least getting an idea of how the markets work, uh, a little, maybe a little bit of history. Actually, a decent amount of history would be good. Um, so I would say that to start. But if you, I don't think you have to wait too long necessarily. Yeah, going more into the future a little bit, how do you think, especially since you guys are a quant fund, you have to use a lot of statistics, how do you guys think AI is going to um, impact investing in the next 10, 20 years? Um, I think we're entering a period in the investing community where the traditional investor, like this person who has an MBA, maybe had worked at a hedge fund for 20, 30 years, Maybe they have a degree in economics, uh, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, I think that type of person isn't going to become further down the totem pole within a typical investment firm structure. Uh, and the people who are going to be in control of the investment decisions are going to be the very intense and highly esoterically trained mathematicians and data scientists because those are the only people who are going to be able to understand the world the way it's going uh, in any way where they can actually glean any insights in, in for the investment strategies. 
Um, the world of becoming so is not too, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say too complicated, but it's not too complicated. Um, it's, our, it's always been complicated, but um, the math is becoming more competitive. The investment strategy is becoming more competitive. More people enter the industry every day. Um, and as more economies come online uh, from the emerging market areas and enter the global markets, it's just going to get even worse. So again, people who have extremely specialized and highly esoteric knowledge are probably going to be the ones that are, again, in control of the investment processes, uh, again, the mathematicians and data scientists. And likewise, um, I think there's going to be a reckoning in the next couple of decades where we're going to realize the limitations of our current mathematical foundations in relation to artificial intelligence. Um, mathematics, as we know it, essentially hasn't had a major hasn't had a major update uh, probably in about a hundred years, and that has profound implications on machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, to the point where I think people overestimate the calculative power that we have uh, when it comes to quantum computing and artificial intelligence. Um, so I think there's going to be some work done there uh, before we can move forward in those realms in the way that people think we're doing right now. You think because um, generative AI and financial knowledge will become more democratized over the next couple of years, do you think retail investors will uh, largely benefit or largely lose a lot from the development of AI? Um, I would say they're probably going... I don't want to sound cynical, but I would say they're probably going to lose. And the reason for that is because the more, there's just a personal belief. I don't have anything to back it up necessarily. So you know, people can agree or disagree however they want. However, um, as investing becomes increasingly complicated and difficult to do, the more likely it is that there's going to be a higher and higher proportion of people that are in that community that are just going to be average. So we're experiencing a lot of volatility in the markets over the last couple of years. Uh, I think it's going to average out again um, as more people enter the community and also as it becomes more difficult to invest, essentially. Again, it's going to require extremely esoteric knowledge um, to, to compete at least to compete well. Uh, and that, it's okay. I mean, average returns are fine. I mean, you can, you know, they're average for a reason, meaning a lot of people also go get below average. So if you can get an average or slightly above or even slightly below, you know, as long as you can outpace inflation, that's, that's a, that's a decent goal, I think, to start with um, because it's hard enough to stay neutral, uh, you know, to not lose money long-term, but if you can gain money and outpace inflation with that, um, yeah, that's that's still pretty difficult to do. I think um, I think you make a good point where I don't know if skill gap is the right word, but um, the people who are the people who um, the, the skill gap gets larger as AI is integrated into these hedge funds and financial institutions, and I mean politicians already have that insider knowledge. How do you think retail investors can not necessarily keep up, but you know? make their own amount of money and, and keep that ROI as consistent as they can in, in the next 10, 20 years? Um, I don't want to say I don't know, but that's a good question. The way we, we tackled the problem, again, was with 
I don't think it's reasonable to expect someone to crack open like a math textbook that was written in like the last year, right? Um, I think if people can, um, I'll put it this way. I think when in doubt, like I think still the best bank for your buck is going to be in the S&P 500. Um, that's pretty reliable. The United States, I don't think is going to cease to be the center of capital markets anytime soon. Uh, with all this talk about the dollar and the debts that are accumulated by the United States government, I still think that like the dollar is positioned pretty strong in comparison to other economies around the world. So I think there's always going to be a large inflow of capital into the United States markets, which will, um, for at least for the foreseeable future, probably for probably when you and I are old, that might that might change a little bit or start start changing dramatically. But so I think the S and P 500 is good space. Um, I think just research an industry like super well, you know, I know a lot about the oil industry. Um, I don't do this anymore because I have my own fund, uh, it'd be unethical for me to do so, but I know enough about oil to make bets, I guess you could say, uh, that give me pretty good returns, uh, for the size of the portfolio that I'd be operating. So I think, you know, it's good to pick an industry and get really good at it. Um, a lot of industries can be around for a long time, you know, e-commerce, uh, it's a good one uh, to take a look in. Um, SaaS, it's always going to be hot for a, at least for a little while. Um, so I, yeah, I would say pick an industry and I think, you know, with the right amount of training and knowledge could probably do pretty well, you know, making small bets. I think that, that uh, I think this question applies to that industry knowledge aspect, but do you think people should lean more into alternatives like crypto? Um, If they know enough about it, I don't know enough about crypto to, I think, make like an educated guess as to the direction it's going in. Um, my gut tells me that I don't think it's going to the moon. <laughs> uh, that's not to say that's not valuable. Um, but, you know, I know people who, I don't know what Bitcoin is at right now. It's like, what, 24,000 or 25,000? I know people who got in at like 50K, 60K for Bitcoin. And they've been waiting for that thing to recover for years um, at this point. Um, and I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that it'll get that high again. I think there's a lot of mania going on. But um, sure, yeah, I think there's room for crypto in a portfolio. Hell, if you can, like I said, with options, like if that's the thing you want to do, you, know, you can make that in your entire portfolio if you know enough about it. Um, you know, it's definitely uh, an exciting and money-filled industry. So, you know, um, I think there's some practicality there. Uh, going more into your fund, can you explain how you guys, I mean, I'm not super educated in, in quant analysis and financials, but uh, can you go into like the investment process and how you guys uh, do due diligence? Sure. So what we like to say to people is that our process is 99% systematized. And what we mean by that is we have an investment model that is essentially making the uh, recommendations to us. However, we always maintain the option to execute the trades manually uh, insofar where we can perform checks on the stocks that it's recommending before it executes. And so we make sure that thing, the thing is still working correctly, essentially. Um, so essentially what we're doing with the model is we are using a machine learning method that we created called the bridge method. 
and we're looking for uh, the way we analyze data is that we're looking for small perturbations within the daily price data from the S&P 500. Going back to, I think, like 1984 or 1983. Um, and essentially what we're looking for in the present day data is proprietary indicators, uh, essentially geometry that we have uh, discovered uh, is robust enough to be used as an investment uh, indicator. Uh, we're looking for these indicators that essentially will tell us that, I guess for lack of a better phrase, big money is about to flow into the stock within the next few months. So the right investors are positioning themselves to buy up a stock. And what that essentially means, uh, in other words, is that we are trying to essentially buy a stock before it becomes popular. So the stocks we buy, we buy five stocks for any given allocation equally distributed uh, across each stock. Uh, the model is money blind, meaning that it doesn't know how much money we're putting into it. Um, and then we buy the portfolio. And then usually within a few months, we don't necessarily know exactly when, but the stocks that we bought will experience what we call regime change. And what that essentially equates to is the emergence of a previously undetected and unprecedented pattern in the way the stock behaves. So we're not looking to repeat the past, but we're look, essentially looking for ways to tell when there's going to be a new pattern emerging in the uh, price behavior of the stock. Um, and then, so we're aiming for aggressive growth within the S&P 500 space. We try to stick around an annualized return of about 20% year over year. Um, and uh, let's see. That's pretty much the gist of it. We hold on to the stocks for at least a year, then we sell and reallocate the sub-portfolios. Uh, we can hold anywhere between five and 15 stocks. It's gone up to like maybe 19 or 20 I've seen uh, at any given time, depending on when people come into the fund. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been going well the last uh, four and a half years. Last year has not been great because the way the market's going, you know, we're heavily exposed to the S&P 500. Um, but our model is designed to have a large snapback effect, uh, meaning that when things recover, uh, they for us, they recover and accelerate quite quickly. So you know, we're pretty excited about when people step away from the sidelines in the next few months, you know, we're excited to see what that's going to look like in the market. Yeah, um, you guys said that you have that machine learning algorithm, but you pull the trades manually, like you don't make the decision until, mm -hmm. you, until you pull it yourself. Do you think in the future, when machine learning algorithms get 10x better, do you think um, hedge funds like yourself will fully automate those trades or do you think they'll still have to pull it manually? Um, well, I think most hedge funds do automate it. I think it's not typical for us to have a quant method. It's not typical for a quant fund to have like a, a quant method that isn't uh, fully systematized in that sense. Uh, but the reason why we do that, like our model, like we, the way we analyze data, it is never done on a machine that is connected to the internet. So we have a lot of cybersecurity, uh, manual cybersecurity processes that are built into the way we analyze the data, but also we have just simple, stupid checks, you know, for that reason. Um, I think we'll always have that check in place because the model is not perfect. It could recommend a stock that is obviously about to go bankrupt, you know, um, you know, you never know. So we always like to have that final check, you know, uh, do a quick DD fundamental analysis, maybe um, on the stock says recommending to make sure there's nothing obvious that it's, um, that it's missing essentially. Yeah. Um, trying to think of other questions. 
I think going back earlier when we were talking about literature that you really liked that was um, uh, economic and financial based, what were your what are your favorite books uh, that are economics and financial based? Oh, um, I have one actually right here somewhere. Oh, here it is. Hold on. This one right here. It's pretty good. It's uh, actually, I don't know if the camera's going to like warp the text. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't. It. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, you can say it. National Innovation Systems, Comparative Analysis by Richard R. Nelson. I think that's one of my favorites. Uh, the reason for that is because it, uh, I've, I really got into the concept of like why, uh, innovation, innovation development occurs in some nations and not other nations, not necessarily on the, on the question where like, if you heard the book guns, germs, and steel necessarily addresses it, but more, but more so, uh, why nations become rich. And that could be from China. Uh, even Indonesia could be used as an example, uh, Mexico, Japan. So, you know, it's not just Western countries that you would look at. Um, but just looking at the way the countries have developed um, and their economies developed over the last couple hundred years, you know, in conjunction with their internal bureaucracy, uh, their international relations, uh, their education systems, and their resource development, um, you know, has, I think, yielded a lot of nuanced insights. Uh, that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Like one of the things that I read and from this book in particular uh, is that, for example, when Japan uh, over the turn of the century in the 1900s, uh, so from the 1800s to the 1900s, the turn of the century, they were trying to rapidly industrialize. And what they discovered, this might've been like the 1800s, I can't remember the exact time period, but it was right around that time. They basically discovered that the, uh, steel making formulas uh, for the Coke, black, Coke blast furnaces that they were trying to make. They were based on a German design, but they didn't work for the resources that were mining in Japan. The reason for that is because the ore was different. So they had to basically come up with an entirely different process to, to do that. Um, and there's a lot of uh, books I've read uh, here and, and there about uh, individual company development. So for example, how do, how do companies like uh, Toyota or like Huawei um, or even Apple, uh, you know, what what really gave them their competitive advantage? Um, and then likewise, there's other books, more so art, academic articles that I found really interesting about the impact of government investment for the United States in the agricultural sectors. Um, and uh, like, for example, I think from like post-Civil War period up until essentially the end of World War II, like agricultural investments were one of the biggest things that I think at one point it was even bigger than the Department of Defense budget uh, was one of the biggest things that, uh, don't quote me on that, though, I'm not really sure. But um, one of the biggest investments that the U.S. government was making was agricultural investments. And essentially right after around the end of World War II, there was like a 70, 80 year investment period. And their investments paid off and all of a sudden yields just completely skyrocketed like 10, 15, 20x in like all the major crops that they were trying to grow. And because of that, people don't really starve in the United States anymore. <laughs> you know, um, so I mean, I think those were pretty fascinating things to look at because, you know, we always have this debate. I mean, I don't, academics don't really make this debate really, but, you know, 
in the mainstream, it's like capitalism or socialism or whatever. And it's like, we can find examples of really strong systems in place from both the private and public sectors uh, that did really well. So I think that was helped give me a lot of nuance uh, in my observations. The other book I was thinking about was uh, Too Big to Fail. I don't know if the camera can see it. It was Too Big to Fail and it was about the 2008 financial crisis. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. thinking about um, AI and how we're using AI so much in our, in our in finance and investing. Do you think, and this is you know just an idea, do you think if we rely on AI too much for our financial decisions and at some point we reach some like AGI point where there's more uh, automated intelligence and human intelligence, do you think there could be kind of a financial crisis at some point caused by by AI? Um, well, I should get one thing straight. So I think um, people, I think need to keep in mind that when they think about AI, like people are still behind those machines. So it's not necessarily there's this new entity that is now acting independent of like what humans are programming it to do. It's still human programming, human desires, human goals that it's being trained to do essentially, you know, these different models. Um, so I think we're always going to have some level of control over that until we make something that's completely unsupervised and independent, which is much harder than it sounds. Um, I don't, I don't know if that'll happen anytime soon, but, um, I don't know. Am I, I mean, going back to what I said about investment, uh, investing being, uh, getting more and more difficult it might end up could very well end up just being the case that like you know the way farming ended up being we have like most of the country used to be farmers now like less than one percent of them are farmers and like none of us know how to farm <laughs> right uh, so it could end up being like that where um less again less and less people become able to compete in the investment space and there's now like an elite not that farmers are elite necessarily, but um, but there's a small, very small percentage of people who actually have capability to and resources to, to carry out uh, these activities. So I think I think it's a fairly reasonable scenario to expect. I would imagine it's consolidation uh, is what it seems to me. All right, I don't have any more questions, so I think that wraps it up. Unless you want to talk about anything else. Uh no, no, I'm all set. Thank you very much, Jacob. Yeah, thank you for coming on.